Hello, and welcome to the Notacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 155th episode of the Notacast titled Cast Away, an analysis of a storm of swords, Davos One, in which Davos Seaworth enjoys a well-deserved vacation. The man has been working hard on a tropical island on Blackwater Bay. While he's there sunning himself, enjoying a bushel of crabs and drinking fresh water cured through a volcanic rock, Davos meets the love of his life, the mother. Fuck, that got weird real quick, didn't it? Aren't the Lannisters bad enough? <laughs> every, we gotta have insist on every side of the war. How unfortunate. Westeros just can't catch a break. It truly cannot catch a break. Yes, the, the, the incest must flow, um, so to speak, in the Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> the tagline for the new movie, Dune. That's right. The, well, that oh too. Yeah, that too. The incest must flow. <laughs> Brilliant. It's beautiful. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards, Lord Command of the Kingsguard Mark N, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. Lord, Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king. Ladies Eve Valyrian. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Burger Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorm. Kelly, Warden of the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie. Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God. Sir Source Delica. Sugar Tits Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior. Lord Pension for Nostalgia. Queer, Ale- Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite. Stand, the Herald of Cher, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, and the Nauticast, Non-Binary, Not an Army. Halderberg, the Way for T-Wow. A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town. Vaderis of House Kogarian, the First of Her Name. Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portrait of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Pates, Maker of Drawings of the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Kristoff Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Hapson, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Ola, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils, wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Brill and Guardian of the Bone Way. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who bring, bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall and Wardens of the South and patron of free-wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master, deliverer, the valiant, pungent, reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Kell, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table. Lord Travis, who has adopted a new title, which is Lord Travis, the Spice Must Flow, Master of Ships and Third Stage Guild Navigator. Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the Winston winner, and our newest member of the small council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Lord DB, who has not quite chosen a title yet, but is telling us that he has a good one coming for us. So thank you to all of our small, not a small counselors, and welcome to Lord DB. Thank you, as always, to our counselors, and welcome to Lord DB. We can't wait for your wonderful, elaborate title. Me too, man. And our spoiling, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three talking novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsmith sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. 
So this week we have a great question from Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, which dovetails really well with the kind of the theory and discussion stuff we want to do for this episode. So we're going to get to that question at the end. So here we just wanted to remind you that we started a new Patreon stretch goal recently of attaining 1,050 total patrons. And when we hit that number, we are going to do a multi-part analysis of the Theon chapter from the Winds of Winter, that awesome chapter where he's in Stannis' cell right before the Battle of Ice, seeing all the strategy and character work go back and forth. It's a chapter almost as dense as the Forsaken which we already did an awesome uh, multi-part series episode on for patrons. So if you like hearing us wax on about the winds of winter, consider checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Yeah, those episodes on the Forsaken are the best episodes that have ever been recorded in human history, so what the <laughs> fuck are you waiting <laughs> Damn for? Damn right. But yes, as of this recording, we have four new patrons that have joined us, and we are inching forward with that goal. So help Sir Frank be the King's Justice out. He's already been putting together the wood for the pyre. If we don't hit our stretch goal, please save our <laughs> lives is what I'm saying. Save us. <laughs> it's true. Save it's us. True. <laughs> but enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Davos, he had sailed up the Blackwater Rush and despite heavy casualties, defeated the Lannister fleet defending King's Landing. If I recall correctly, I don't believe anything else happened in that chapter. Is that correct? I think so. Let's find Pretty out. <laughs> good. So, so good to have my priors confirmed on that one. Let's find out how Davos is enjoying the fruits of Stannis' victory in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords. Davos won. He watched the sail grow for a long time, trying to decide whether he would sooner live or die. Dying would be easier, he knew. All he had to do was crawl inside his cave and let the ship pass by and death would find him. For days now, the fever had been burning through him, turning his bowels to brown water and making him shiver in his restless sleep. Each morning found him weaker. It will not be much longer, he had taken to telling himself. Well, truly every chapter opener to A Storm of Swords is happier than the previous chapter opener. It's not. Davos Seaworth is sick, and he's dying of thirst. There was no water to drink, save for the occasional rainfall. And the last rainfall was three, no, four days ago. The rain had brought some life for Davos to snuff out, that is, crabs and such. The point is that it was growing difficult to remember the passage of time, and that water was all used up from that rainfall. It was almost seawater time, and then Davos would die. Now, there was an island off in the distance, a large rock that jutted from the sea, and Davos could see seagulls landing there. He had dreamed once about swimming over and raiding their nests, but he knew that he was too weak to make the swim and survive. So Davos had taken to weakly throwing rocks whenever any of those gulls would land on his rock, but they would just get annoyed and screech at Davos whenever he would hit them with a rock. Davos remembers that the narrow sea was windy, wet, and rainy, and all of this contributes to a worsening fever, chills, and a bad cough. The only place Davos has is a cave which provides him only partial shelter and cover. Davos had tried to start a fire with driftwood, but he only got blisters from that attempt. Thirst, hunger, exposure. They were his companions with him every hour of every day, and in time he had come to think of them as his friends. Soon enough, one or the other of his friends would take pity on him and free him from his endless misery. Or perhaps he would simply walk into the water one day and strike out for the shore that he knew lay somewhere to the north, beyond his sight. It was too far to swim, as weak as he was, but that didn't matter. Davos had always been a sailor. He was meant to die at sea. The gods beneath the waters have been waiting. The gods beneath the waters have been waiting for me, he told himself. It's past time I went to them. But now Davos is looking at a sail on the horizon. It was small, but growing larger. It was coming towards him when he knows that it really shouldn't. See, this part of Blackwater Bay was treacherous with all the rocks called the Spears of the Merlin King, just beneath the surface of the water. Davos knows this ship is coming this way, though, and the boat would be within shouting distance soon. He could find refuge there if he wanted it. It, it. it might mean life if he wanted it. He was not sure he did. Why should I live? He thought as tears blurred his visions. Gods be good. Why? My sons are Ted, Dale and Allard, Marek and Mathos, perhaps Devon as well. How can a father outlive so many strong young sons? How would I go on? I am a hollow shell. The crabs died. There's nothing left inside. Don't they know that? Davos recalls the Battle of the Blackwater and how he and his sons sailed with the fleet up the Blackwater Rush. He remembers the sights and sounds of battle, and then he remembers the wildfire. 
And then some vast beasts had let out a roar and green flames were all around them. Wildfire, Pyromancer's Piss, the Jade Demon. Mathos had been standing at his elbow on the deck of Black Betha when the ship seemed to lift from the water. Davos found himself in the river, flailing as the current took him and spun him around and around. Upstream, the flames had ripped at the sky, fifty feet high. He had seen Black Betha, Fire, and Fury, and a dozen other ships had seen men burning, leaping into the water to drown. Wraith and Lady Mario were gone, sunk or shattered or vanished behind a veil of wildfire, and there was no time to look for them, because the mouth of the river was almost upon him, and across the mouth of the river the Lannisters had raised a great iron chain. From bank to bank there was nothing but burning ships and wildfire. The sight of it seemed to stop his heart for a moment, and he could still remember the sound of it, the crackle of flames, the hiss of steam, the shrieks of dying men, and the, and the beat of that terrible heat against his face as the current swept him down towards hell. All he needed to do was nothing. A few moments more, and he would be with his sons now, resting in the cool green mud on the bottom of the bay, with fish nibbling at his face. Instead, Davos took a deep breath and dove deep, moving through the murky water past drowning men. He dove all the way to the bottom of, to the bottom of the brush, even touching the soft, silty ground at the bottom. He starts swimming hard, trying to get underneath what he thinks is the chain, but then Davos loses his sense of direction, not being sure whether he's swimming up or down. Panic took hold of him. His hands flailed against the bottom of the river and sent up a cloud of mud that blinded him. His chest was growing tighter by the instant. He clawed at the water, kicking, pushing himself, turning, his lungs screaming for air, kicking, kicking, lost now in the river murk, kicking, kicking, kicking until he could kick no longer. When he opened his mouth to scream, the water came rushing in, tasting of salt, and Davos Seaworth knew that he was drowning. The next he knew, the sun was up, and he lay upon a stony strand beneath the spire of naked stone, with the empty bay all around and a broken mast, a burned sail and a swollen corpse beside him. The mast, the sail, and the dead man vanished with the next high tide, leaving Davos alone on his rock amidst the spears of the Merlin King. Davos was familiar with where he landed, as was a spot that a few honest seamen, eh, seamen get it, ventured to, but Davos knew the smuggler, but Davos the smuggler knew the spot and had used it to escape notice in his smuggling days. When they find me dead here, if ever they do, perhaps they will name the rock for me, he thought. Onion rock, they'll call it. It will be my tombstone and my legacy. Davos deserved no more. The father protects his children, the septons taught, but Davos had led his boys into the fire. Dale would never give his wife the child they had prayed for, and Allard with the girl in Old Town and the girl in King's Landing and his girl in Bravos, they would all be weeping soon. Mathos would never captain his own ship as he dreamed. Merrick would never have his knighthood. How can I live when they are dead? So many brave knights and mighty lords have died. Better men than me, and highborn. Crawl inside your cave, Davos. Crawl inside and shrink up small and the ship will go away and no one will ever trouble you again. Sleep on your stone pillow and let the gulls peck out your eyes while the crabs feast on your flesh. You feasted on enough of them. You owe them. Hide, smuggler. Hide and be quiet and die. The sail was almost on him. A few minutes more, a few moments more, and the ship would be safely passed and he could die in peace. Davos reaches for his luck, his leather pouch of finger bones, but he finds that it's gone. He remembers how he kept the bones as reminders of Stannis' justice. It was his luck. But the fire had taken his luck and his sons. Davos cries out to the mother for mercy to save him. The fire took it all. Perhaps it was only the wind blowing against the rock or the sound of the sea on the shore. But for an instant, Davos Seaworth heard an answer. You called the fire, she whispered, her voice as faint as the sound of waves in a seashell, sad and soft. You burned us, burned us, burned us. It was her, Davos cried. Mother, don't forsake us. It was her who burned you. The red woman, Melisandre, her. He could see her, the heart-shaped face, the red eyes, the long coppery hair, her red gowns moving like flames as she walked, a swirl of silken satin. She had come from a shy in the east. She had come to Dragonstone at once, at least, and her queen's men for her alien god, and then the king, Stannis Baratheon himself. He had gone so far as to put the fiery heart on his banners, the fiery heart of Relore, lord of light and the god of flame and shadow. At Melisandre's urging, he had dragged the seven from their sept at Dragonstone and burned them before the castle gates, and later he had burned the godswood at Storm's End as well, even the heart tree, a huge white werewood with his solemn face. 
Once again, Davos blames Belisandra, but then in a moment of self-reflection, he realizes that it was Davos. It was he who wrote. It was he who wrote Belisandra under Storm's End. It was Davos who allowed Belisandra to birth the Shadow Child. It was Davos who stood silent and watched that the Seven were burned, stood, saw, and did nothing. The sail was a hundred yards away and moving fast across the bay. In a few more moments, it would be past him and dwindling. Sir Davos Seaworth began to climb his rock. I, I mean, I don't know. There, there's something truly epic and moving about Davos climbing up the rock at this point of the chapter. It's, it's just... Hits me in the feels. Davos gets himself up the rock, still feeling feverish. He slips knowing that if he falls, he'll die. But he needs to live for a bit longer anyway. He has work to do. At the top of the rock, he crouches, waving bony arms, shouting for the ship and for the ship to save him. He sees writing on the hall, but doesn't know how to read. He screams for the ship to help him, and a crew member sees him and points. Soon, other sailors come to gawk at Davos, and a small boat is launched from the ship down towards Davos's island. When the boat reaches Davos, the man on the prow calls up to Davos, asking, asking who he is. Davos says he's a captain, a knight. He was in the battle. Aye, sir, the man said, and serving which king? The galley might be Joffrey's, Davos realized suddenly. If he spoke the wrong name now, she would abandon him to his fate. But no, her hull was striped. She was Lysine. She was Salador Sans. The mother sent her here, the mother in her mercy. She had a task for him. Stannis lives, he knew then. I have a king still, and sons. I have other sons, and a wife loyal and loving. How could he have forgotten? The mother was merciful indeed. Stannis, he shouted back at the Lyseni. Gods be good, I serve King Stannis. I, said the man in the boat, and so do we. Fuck yeah. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Davos 1. You got me, George, several times in that chapter. You really got me in the feels, especially at chapter's end with that kind of triumphant, I still serve Stannis. What did you think of this chapter, sir? I loved Davos's chapters in Clash of Kings. The only problem was that there weren't enough of them. Davos is not one of those characters who springs fully formed into the author's head. George invented him because he needed a POV on Stannis. So in Clash, Davos was a window on two important events. The Azora High Ceremony on Dragonstone, the Shadow Baby under Storm's End, and the Wildfire Inferno on the Blackwater. Davos himself didn't have much of an arc going on compared to, say, Theon, the other new POV. That changes big time in Storm of Swords. Davos gets twice as many chapters as he did in the previous book, and Stannis doesn't even show up until halfway through. This is Davos's story now. He starts the book as a lone, traumatized survivor on the brink of physical and spiritual annihilation, and he ends the book as the hand of the king, saving innocent lives and possibly the whole damn world in the process. <laughs> Davos is no longer merely bearing witness. He is intervening, so plot and character work together. But everything works together in these chapters. The dialogue, the imagery, the big thematic statements, they're all in harmony. This is perfect art. As immaculate as an Egyptian tomb or a Roman aqueduct, Davos is my favorite. No, nah, screw that. Davos is objectively <laughs> the best POV in A Storm of Swords. Okay, okay. I accept this. This is an opinion and one that you hold. And you hold this opinion with sincerity even. But no, seriously, I. it's hard to argue with you, especially after this chapter. because, And then reading a couple more Davos chapters thereafter. Because Davos' chapters are truly excellent. As you talked about, Davos's class chapters were primarily in service of establishing Stannis Baratheon. The character, his supporting cast, his quick rise and even quicker fall. George said in 2003 that he didn't want to make Stannis a point of view, and that's why he invented Davos Seaworth as a point of view character. But while Davos's storm chapters further establish, establish Stannis and his retinue, I love how we find out who Davos truly is in his chapters in A Storm of Swords. He comes into his own as a character, and it's brilliant and amazing. And that really starts here in his first chapter, obviously. Kind of a dumb thing to say. It's okay. It starts here in Davos 1. And what better way to flesh out Davos than to leave him alone with his thoughts and leave him alone dying? Davos's last chapter in Clash ended on a hideous cliffhanger. He lost his ship and his sons to the wildfire before sinking into what he described as the mouth of hell. The first-time reader might assume he's dead. We turn the page, see Davos's name, and go, Really? Still? And the same goes for Stannis and the Baratheon cause that Davos serves. It seems 
irrelevant now. As Tywin said, Stannis' son set on the Blackwater, fitting the Sun King imagery of the Azor Ahai mythos. Night has fallen for him. The Lannisters and Tyrells comfortably hold the seat of power. The reader is prepared for them to turn against the Starks now. And beyond that, we know they've got the Ironborn to deal with, and the Wildlings, and the White Walkers, and Danny. There's plenty of pieces left on the board. We might expect the Stag piece to be removed at this point. The first two books were in part about the downfall of House Baratheon, the royal family of Westeros. King Robert is dead, his line usurped by the Lannisters. King Renly is dead too, killed by King Stannis, who is now political roadkill. Why are we here? What's so brilliant is that's exactly the question Davos is asking himself. That's how this chapter opens, with Davos trying to decide whether he wants to live or die. Should I keep my story going? He has to justify every breath he takes, every day he manages to survive, because it seems like he should be done, as a character as well as a person. The drama here is existentialist, bleak, but exhilarating in how directly it addresses the big scary questions we all work so hard to keep at bay. Why am I alive at all? Why am I suffering? If there's an author up there, what do they want me for? Can I do any good in this world? If not, why not just lay down and die? As Davos admits to Melisandre in his final chapter in this book, he has no answers to these questions, and that's because no one does. As they say in Princess Bride, life is pain, highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something. The struggle is the point, because the struggle generates meaning. We find individual reasons to live, candles we light in the darkness to borrow from Melisandre's imagery. By the end of the book, Davos embraces his own capacity to act, to be the change he wishes to see in the world. In the process, he revitalizes Stannis's flagging campaign and spirits, offering what might be the most succinct political statement in the series, one that has only aged well. A king protects his people, or he is no king at all. It's such precise, focused storytelling, taking us through Davos's rise step by step from rock bottom to the top of the tower. I think it's extremely well said. I think that is an absolutely succinct way that George is describing the ideal ideal political system uh, in Westeros and one that Davos is hoping that Stannis is going to aspire to at some point in the story. One day, one day he'll get there. It's interesting, too, that similar to last week where the choice of Tyrion and next week with the choice of Sansa uh, are there to display the apex of Lannister power and triumph. Because George is again demonstrating his love for the down and outs and chooses his point of views thusly. For all intents and purposes, the Baratheon star did set on the Blackwater, as you and Tywin Lannister were saying. But it, <laughs> that's a terrible way to put it. But well, it begs thanks. the yeah, right. But it begs the question: Why the Baratheon faction is still in this book known as the Storm of Swords? In due course, we're going to find out with all the dense drama on Dragonstone and the adventures up on the wall. But but why overall? I mean, partially, I think the idea is that defeated people are more interesting to write about than victorious people. Like I said last week, like, can you imagine the Lannister perspective being told from the perspective of Cersei from A Storm of Swords would have been terrible, would have been insufferable. But the fact that they have Tyrion and Sansa do that storytelling makes it a much more compelling story. The larger dynamic, though, is that this Baratheon story is great fodder for dramatic tension and the extreme choices that George likes to push his characters towards. Now, I am not saying that Stannis would have never considered burning Edric Storm, never, not in his wildest imagination, would have ever considered burning Edric Storm had the Battle of the Blackwater not gone his way. But, or rather, had it not gone the way that it actually had gone. But the lowest places make extreme choices more palatable to characters on page, and in real life, too. In a way, we find Davos at the start of A Storm of Swords, is works as kind of a metaphor for Stannis' cause, because he and it are barely alive, not sure whether they want to go on living, but to survive, they need to find out who they are, and they need to do that by facing extreme choices and making the greatest of sacrifices personally, or the greatest of sacrifices morally, let's say. And in order for that to land, I think George has to first strip Davos down to his core, and then rebuild him anew. So Davos starts his story in this book with nothing. No king to serve, no ships to sail, no onions to smuggle, no sons to raise, no backdrop. Only him, alone on his rock, an empty stage. It's the human condition in its most naked and plaintive form. Davos has nothing to do but wake up from his nightmares of the battle 
and decide whether he wants to try and make it through another day. While later Davos chapters will contain some of the story's best dialogue scenes, this chapter is more about interior monologue and stark, simple imagery. Davos's world are, is the raw elements of sea and sky and stone, and his only companions now, as he thinks, are exposure, hunger, and thirst. This minimalist style stands in contrast to the maximalist imagery of Davos's chapters in Clash, which kind of overwhelmed him. Here, we have to focus on him, because there's nothing else to see. The person-gets-shipwrecked-on-an-island scenario is a very familiar one. Every medium and generation has their own version of this, from Lost to the Swiss Family Robinson, from the epic romantic poem The Rime of the Ancient Mariner to endless Gilligan's Island marathons on TV. Only a month after Storm of Swords was released in the USA, uh, Girls Gone Canon pointed this out. They did a great job on this when they did this chapter. Just very close to the release of Storm, we got the movie Castaway, with Tom Hanks basically playing Davos and Wilson <laughs> the Volleyball basically playing the mother. The tone is different, the stakes change, the quality is all over the place, but we can't let this story go. It resonates in a lot of different directions. On the one hand, you could frame it as the idle fantasy of bored audiences, craving novelty and adventure, uh, but only so much. I think you can see that with the idea of books or albums you would want on a desert island, which is just kind of a ridiculous scenario if you think about it for more than a second. On the other hand, this scenario can make for a compressed, dramatic gauntlet. A way to cut past illusions with no mercy and expose your characters. George nails the way Davos' life on this rock feels like a, a wasteland, almost post-apocalyptic. He's in a world without food or water or hope. Like Aaron Damper in The Forsaken, Davos feels cut off from not only humanity, but his gods. He's been abandoned on this bleak earth to scrape for survival. As you were saying, Davos' situation mirrors that of Stannis. The king, too, is sitting on his rock, Dragonstone, and licking his wounds after the battle. He, too, is increasingly hopeless. Nothing to do but wait to die. Davos, is, Davos 1 is bookended by Tyrion 1 right before it and Sansa 1 right after it. Two chapters set in King's Landing that show us the winners of the battle, consolidating their gains. In between, we get this chapter. All about what it feels like to have lost the battle, and so much else. It really does feel like the sun has set. Bronn told Tyrion that the city is full of food and drink now. Contrast that with the grim details of Davos surviving on rainwater and the occasional crab. He throws rocks at birds, but he's too weak to kill them. <laughs> the Tyrells are all bright colors and rich fabrics. Davos can't even start a fire to protect him from the elements, which quickly have him shivering and sweating in the grip of the fever. He's afflicted with diarrhea, like Danny out on the Dothraki Sea at the end of A Dance with Dragons, which is another very similar chapter to this one. I was comparing it to post-apocalypse, but uh, this chapter also feels like we've gone back in time. Like Davos is the first human, our ancestor who washed up on the waves, all alone. No man is an island, but Davos feels like one. I think it's really well said. I love that idea of Davos kind of crawling out of the uh, primordial ooze, so to speak, in order to emerge as a human being. Uh, they kind of jumped a couple like uh, levels of evolution to get to that point uh, for for Davos because he's a fully formed person. Supposed it's to. true. It's accelerated. By the time he walks out of the waves, it's a person. Imagine like a time lapse thing. Exactly. Right. You know, George wrote a storm of swords very quickly, and thus Davos, you know, exactly. comes out of, Moved out of it the along. sea very quickly. Right. Just <laughs> boom, 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 kind of moving forward. So you had mentioned uh, shipwreck stories, which I think is a really good. Uh, inspiration that George was using here. But I also think that George, as we're going to discuss at significant length here in a little bit, is borrowing heavily from religious asceticism as well. I'm reminded of the Desert Fathers from early Christianity who lived alone in places like the Sinai Peninsula or the Arabian Peninsula, or monastics from medieval Christianity who cloistered in monasteries, adopting vows of silence, poverty, etc. Then you go back to the New Testament, you find the story of Jesus and the 40 days of going without food and the temptation of Satan. These kinds of stories come to mind, and they are something we did talk about at significant length in our Forsaken Patreon episodes with Dampere. The point in these ascetic religious experiences is that man does not live by bread alone, but on the very word of God. More than the religious side of the experience, scarcity and lack sometimes display humans at their core. Who is the real person underneath when he or she has been stripped of the comforts of life? Who are they if they've been stripped of everything? That's where George has Davos as a Job-like figure here. And I think that's the better religious inspiration for Davos in his first chapter in A Storm of Swords than our Desert Fathers and our monastics. 
Job, for all of you godless out there, go to church, was a righteous man whose life God allowed Satan to destroy to test whether Job was truly faithful when his life went really, really badly. And though Job remained faithful to God, he grew depressed and actually questioned God's goodness, if you read the book of Job. And then God showed up in a whirlwind to challenge Job's questioning, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Is a famous quote from the book of Job and just a, a fantastic quote altogether. The point was that the mind of God is unknowable by human means. Why do we suffer when God is good? Pfft, you're not going to get an answer. That answer is beyond human understanding, according to the author of the book of Job anyways. That's where we find Davos at the start of A Storm of Swords, stripped of everything and questioning why when everything has gone to shit. Will the gods answer Davos similarly as they did, Job? Let's find out. I love thinking about the book of Job and, and reading and seeing stories that are, are based on it or riffing on it because it, it gets at it gets at that spiritual despair. There's the, the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, which I, I love so much. I really recommend to anyone. It's probably my favorite mm. of theirs. And it, it, it riffs heavily on these questions. And the main character at one point just like pleads with his rabbi and says, why does he make us feel the questions if we're never going to get any answers? Hmm. And you can, you can definitely see that go on with Davos here. And yes, he's going to be uh, having a more religious conversation later in the episode. But, uh, but let's back up a bit first. <laughs> How did Davos come to be suffering on this rock? And where the hell is this rock anyway? Davos tells us that a series of sea moths lurk just outside Blackwater Bay. They poke up above the surface, but like an iceberg, most of them waits underneath, ready to rip up any boat that comes too close. They represent the temptation of power for Stannis. He thought the ends would justify the means, but then the Lannisters used hideous means as well. Stannis didn't see the threat under the surface, spreading like the wildfire until it was too late. As Davos remembers, they sailed up the Blackwater under the banner of the Fiery Heart, the Lord of Light, who would surely protect his chosen ones. And then some vast beast let out a roar. The fire betrayed them, the green flames dancing all around, eating up ships, soldiers, and sailors alike. That much we remember from Clash of Kings. What's new is what comes next. Davos realized while sinking into hell that all he had to do was let go, and the pain would stop. Just sink into the mud with your sons. Let the fish nibble at your face. It's over. It reminds me of how Garrod talked about the cold getting inside you in the prologue, and that after a while you start to feel warm and sleepy, and it's even pleasant after a while, before you die. Instead, Davos chose to live, as he will in this chapter. He swims past drowning men, burdened by plate and mail, unlike Davos, because he was a smuggler before he was a knight. Unlike them, he's always prepared for the worst. He was always ready for the bottom to fall out. Davos swam deeper and deeper into hell, knowing the only way out is through. That sums up his story in Storm and A Dance with Dragons, sailing into treacherous waters, sustained by the faith that he will somehow weather the storm. Something brushed against his leg. A drowning man? Or a fish? Davos can't tell. The wildfire inferno was a pure horror image. This is more about the ambiguity of Davos's perspective, making life-or-death decisions when you can't see what's going on around you. Davos thinks he's drowning, and George conveys the animal panic of realizing you're about to die. As the book goes on, Davos will feel like he's drowning in ethical terms. Stannis and Melisandre create agonizing situations with no clear resolution for him. Yeah, I think that's that's brilliant. I think that really sticks out, sticks out to me is the drowning part of it when he's determining whether he's supposed to he needs to swim up but then he realizes he isn't sure what's up or down in the in the water he's so disoriented by holding his breath that his mind can't logically make out where he's supposed to swim now in the real world this phenomenon of losing one sense of direction underwater is known by various names such as spatial disorientation or my favorite term i found topographic disorientation yeah i hmm. looked it up on google guys that's great <laughs> This disorientation occurs for Davos because he's been underwater for too long. The lack of oxygen in the brain dulls the brain's natural ability to sense direction. And one should know it, but that sense of disorientation that Davos feels at the bottom of the Blackwater Rush serves a story purpose as well, a thematic one. Davos and Stannis' story in A Storm of Swords is all about that disorientation, not knowing what's up or down or what is right or moral. Obey your king when he contemplates burning an innocent child. What if, burning, what if burning that innocent child will save a million other children? It's all so murky when you get down to the depths, and what's right or wrong or up or down becomes so goddamn confused. 
Davos' story is divine this way. We as moderns don't have the same sort of loyalty or obedience to feudal monarchs, though we have our own, you know, our own discussions about loyalty and and obedience to to our to our, uh, our rightful sovereign, so to speak. Yet the moral struggles Davos faces and Stannis faces as well are framed in a way that makes us empathize with the struggles of these medievalish type men. Eris, if you only knew, that was a hard choosing. My blood or my liege, my brother or my king. Everything comes down to these hard ethical questions for Davos, and unlike the outcome of Davos's drowning here, where blind luck or chance saves his ass from drowning, he has to make conscious choices to swim up towards the light. Like Catelyn's first chapter in this book, Davos's first chapter here is the most intimate version of the ideas that will grow in scale later on. The sea calls to him, as the sky calls to prisoners in the Eyrie, like Tyrion back in Book 1. The sea seems to offer escape, but Davos knows the only way off his rock, the only way off this barren earth, is death. If he drinks seawater, the end will come soon. If he tries to swim to shore, it'll come even quicker. Still, the ocean calls. It's always been home, hence his house name, Seaworth. Davos came from the sea to the sea he shall return. But now, suddenly, there's a sail on the horizon. George constructs this chapter beautifully, starting with the image of the sail, and then filling us in on Davos's physical and mental state so we understand how he'll react to it. The sail offers Davos the agony of choice, which is the central theme of his story in this book. He has to do more than serve. He must decide. He must choose, as you were saying with Stannis. The sight of the sail brings Davos no relief, because now he can't just passively wait to die, which is what he was doing. The possibility of survival brings with it a painful reckoning. To live, he has to face everything he's lost. Davos wants to die in part because of the sheer physical misery of this existence. That's why he thinks of hunger and thirst as friends who will eventually take pity on him by killing him, letting him out of this watery prison cell. But Davos is also traumatized by the battle and haunted by grief. He survived. His sons did not. As they burned, he swam away. He hates himself for it. He doesn't think he deserves to live. He's unworthy of this miraculous second chance that has only made his suffering continue anyway. He would rather never have to face the world of the living again. As far as Davos is concerned, he's already dead. Dead on the inside. Davos compares himself to a hollow shell left behind by a dead crab, fitting the oceanic imagery of his story. The stuff of life is gone, leaving only the structure the pretense. That's Davos's legacy, he thinks. Onion rock. A testament to a man who thought he was doing it all for his kids, only to watch them burn. And that right there may well be Stannis's legacy as well. A shield with nothing left to defend. We didn't get to know Davos's sons all that well in Clash, but George includes details here to ground us in Davos's grief. It's all about the lives they could have lived. Mathos will never captain his own ship. Merrick will never have his knighthood. They wanted to climb the ladder after Dad. But as in Karth, the ladder was a fiery one, with nothing at the top. Most painful of all is the memory of his eldest son, Dale. He and his wife were trying to conceive. Davos could have been a grandfather, watching a generation of Seaworths who had never known poverty. It's all been taken away. What was my climb for? Davos thinks he's unworthy in part because of his low birth. Better men than me, highborn men, died on the river. Why should I live? You were talking about how much this chapter goes for the, for the gut punch, and for me, the most devastating example is when he just thinks to himself, hide, smuggler, and die. Hmm. It's, it's significant that he calls himself a smuggler in this moment. Going forward, one of the major factors in Davos' story is the tension between what you could call his noble self and his smuggler self. His noble self is the one that led his children into the fire. Davos feels that man, Sir Davos of House Seaworth, he died in the battle, like everyone thought. Like the corpse that washed up on the rock with him, that could be his other self. Davos has lost his luck, he thinks, clutching at his neck where his finger bones used to be. Four lost finger bones for four dead sons. All that's left is the smuggler self. That's who I really am. I was pretending to be that other man, and my innocent children paid the price. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think a big part of the dynamic is... For Davos' survivor's guilt, or the idea that Davos did something wrong by surviving a traumatic event when his sons did not. But as you're saying, it's not simple survivor's guilt that's animating Davos' emotional state here. 
The decisions Devos made, the loyalties that he carried out far beyond human reasoning in his own mind, led Devos and his sons into the green flames. Stannis was Davos's true god, as he said in A Clash of Kings, but Stannis right now looks like the god that failed Davos. Except, and this is so George's lapse Catholicism here on display, it's not God's fault that shit has gone bad. No, 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 it's the sinner's fault. It's Davos's sin that's led to his son's death. Davos had risen too high, loved Stannis too much, grasped a star, overreached, and fell. Back in A Clash of Kings, Davos thought at length about how Stannis had raised him and, that's, and that all he had in his life he owed to Stannis. But now in Storm, that service has resulted in tragedy and heartbreak for Davos. It's not explicitly stated here or back in A Clash of Kings, but this chapter mentions how Mathos, his son, was standing right at Davos' elbow when the wildfire exploded. Perhaps Mathos absorbed the shockwave from the wildfire blast or a piece of shrapnel which prevented the blast from hitting Davos as hard as it did. In other words, Mathos took the bullet, metaphorically and literally speaking, that was meant for Davos. Of course, that's not how reality works in the battlefield. You stand in one spot and you live, you stand in another a few feet away and you die. Random, dumb fucking chance. But for Davos, there is no random chance. He's alive while his sons are dead, and it's all because of his sin. Interestingly, Davos does not frame his, his sin as his service to Stannis. Rather, his sin was in aiding and abetting Melisandre. Davos may have thought that something was wrong when he talked with Stannis back in the Clash of Kings Davos too, but he's not at the point where he blames Stannis for what Melisandre did. No, no, Davos has taken my position when we had that argument back in one of our 15 episodes on a Clash of Kings Davos 2, that Stannis didn't know that Melisandre had birthed the shadow and sent it to and sent it forward for in terms of metaphysical evil. But all of that Christian imagery and connection Davos makes between sin and suffering leads Davos in an unexpected or expected direction, depending on your perspective. Uh, or rather, in an unexpected or expected conversation with the gods themselves. Maybe. Probably not. Yeah, all of the above. Everything we've been talking about here feeds into Davos's vision of the mother, which is the heart of the chapter. Everything builds up to it. On one hand, you've got the bleak material realities of Davos's situation, which seem to speak to a godless world. If the Seven are really there, why have they forsaken Davos, a kind-hearted man? Why allow his innocent sons to die? On the other hand, it's a miracle that Davos survived at all. And as he'll argue in his next chapter, it's also a miracle that this ship turned up near his rock, given how notorious this area is for shipwrecks. So we don't even get the dignity of a clear answer. If we could say for certain that there's no one up there watching us, at least it would end the torment, the open questions that make up the human condition. The gods offer us examples, parables, as instructions in the abstract. We're the ones who have to put it into practice, and we always inevitably fail. The father protects his children. That's what the Septons taught Davos. We are all God's children, and he will not abandon you. If you would be a good man, a good father, be like him. But Davos failed to protect his children. He led them into the fire. In peacetime, children bury their parents. In war, parents bury their children. The fire scoured his world and his soul, leaving him on a bare rock. I led my kids into the fire, but it feels like my father, my father above, led me into this hopeless mess. Why? Davos prays to the mother for mercy. And a voice answers. We'll talk more about what's going on here later in the episode. In terms of Davos's arc, the point is that the mother confronts Davos about his choices. You called the fire, the voice whispers, like the echo of the waves you can hear in seashells. You burned us. That's how Davos's first chapter began, watching the gods burn and blacken like his sons on the Blackwater. According to this voice, one led to the other. You allowed Stannis's fury to consume your family along with us. You broke the cosmic order, the chain of being. All will suffer for it. The gods didn't lead you here, Davos. You led yourself here. You stood, watched, and did nothing. Worse than that, you sailed Melisandre under Storm's End and helped her kill Courtney Penrose. As she said at the time, your hand raised the sail. Your hand holds the tiller. What's remarkable about this is, like Catelyn's experience at, at the Sep at Storm's End, it arguably demonstrates the Faith's power more if it's not real. It shows how deeply the faith has sunk into Davos that the mother is who appears to him in this moment. Guilt is a difficult thing to deal with, especially when combined with physical deprivation and trauma from the battle. His brain needs someone to tell him he's bad, so he can defend himself, 
and then realize that his defense doesn't hold up. Davos finally has to admit to himself, you are not guiltless, no. You can't just put this all on Melisandre. That brings Davos to the catharsis he needs. A cleansing, honest look at himself. It's painful, but it's what allows him to move forward. It's what gives him reason to live. I have to redeem myself to make up for what I've done. We will talk more about his methods of doing so <laughs> in his next chapter, though. It's left is deliciously ambiguous here for this chapter of what Davos intends to do. And it's, it's great. It's, it's a great setup for Davos, too. And, and, you know, keeping on with the kind of religious themes that I've been pointing out in this chapter, there's a Saul on the road to Emmaus thing going on here from the book of Acts. When Paul was Saul, he was a persecutor of the early Christian sect, going from town to town to persecute early Christians and returning back to Judaism, or borrowing that to stone them, a la the, uh, the Apostle Stephen, not the Apostle, the Disciple Stephen. But on the road to Emmaus, Saul had a light fall around him and heard the voice of Jesus asking, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Davos is not an active persecutor of the faith of the seven, and that's not the role that he had on Dragonstone from A Clash of Kings. But as we're going to find out in later Davos chapters in Storm, that's much more Selyse and Melisandre, and Stannis by extension, but we'll get to that argument in, in Davos too. But now he's hearing the voice of the mother calling him back to his faith. At the same time, the voice of the mother is rather accusatory, isn't it? You burned us. Burned us. Davos did no such thing. He didn't burn the gods. No, sir. He merely watched as it happened. In my synopsis, I alluded to a similar dynamic from Barristan's story in A Dance with Dragons, how Barristan never raised a torch to Rickard, to Rickard Stark or tied the rope around Brandon Stark's neck. But he stood, saw, and did nothing while these terrible things happened, taking the view that his duty to Aerys II was of greater value than his knightly vow to defend those who cannot defend themselves. That's kind of what Davos is experiencing here, that guilt over not rising to protect the gods from Melisandre's flames. What's fascinating is that while Davos experienced guilt watching the Seven burn back on Dragonstone, his perspective at the time was much less devout than what it, is, what it appears here. Allard kicked at the stone. The others take our onion in that flaming heart. It was an ill thing to burn the Seven. When did you grow so devout, Davos said. What does a smuggler's son know of the doings of gods? And now the smuggler's son thinks that he knows of the doings of gods. He's seen a magical shadow cast by Melisandre and has heard the mother's call. And all of those religious awakenings have pierced Davos with an intimate guilt, a guilt that he has to atone for. It's so powerful to read Davos step forward to take control of his destiny. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how much his shortened fingers slip, Sir Davos Seaworth began to climb his rock. Once again, this is a microcosm of what happens with the Team Stannis plot as a whole. Stannis responds to the signal of the Night's Watch letter, giving him reason to go on, just as Davos responds to the sale here. But Stannis would never have even seen the Night's Watch letter without Davos. So everything depends on this moment. The fate of so many people coming down to this common-born man, declaring he's not worthless. He screams into the wind for help, begging to rejoin humanity. The sailors demand to know who he is. And that's the big question for Davos in the Storm of Swords. You were talking about it earlier in spiritual terms. Who are you after you lose everything that makes you who you were? Your ship, your sons, your luck? You must remake yourself, the self-made man. Rebirth is painful, just like birth. The early chapters of Storm hammer that home over and over again. We've already seen it with Tyrion and Jaime. Who was Davos? According to him, a smuggler who rose above himself, a fool who loved his king too much and forgot his gods. So King Stannis is no longer Davos' god, as he put it in Clash of Kings, and he is no longer able to reconcile his knight self and his smuggler self. Davos is a contradiction now, a proper human mess, rather than a supporting character in Stannis' story. He used to pride himself on speaking so plainly and directly, but now he can't even communicate who he is. All he can say is that he was in the battle, he was a captain, he was a knight, I was, I was, but who am I? Who do you serve, they ask. There's a tense moment in which Davos wonders if they might serve Joffrey, but the Lysine stripes on their sails give them away. Ah, oh, they were sent for me, Davos thinks. And whether or not that's true is less important <laughs> than how it lifts Davos out of the hole inside him. He remembers that... Oh yeah, I still have other sons and a <laughs> wife at home waiting for me. How could I have thought of abandoning them? There's still love to be found on this earth. Moreover, the fact that the Lysine are still in Blackwater Bay at all means that Stannis lives, and Davos will return to his service, 
but as a king, not a god. Davos feels he owes his life to the gods beneath the waves, and considers returning to them. Then the ship arrives. Davos will later argue that the mother sent it. Okay, so which god really sent it? George did. It's a message from the (laughs) author, the one true god of this universe, that he has need of Davos. And we will start learning why in Davos 2, when we finally meet Edric Storm. Yeah, that dynamic with Edric Storm and Davos is one of the most thrilling pieces of drama that we're going to see in A Storm of Swords and something I am desperately eager to get into with you, sir. And and for me, the brilliance at the end of this chapter is where Davos isn't sure whether the ship is Joffrey's or Stannis's, And that, I think, is something that goes kind of deeply unexplored by fans. Because most fans look at Davos and they see a man who is almost blind in his loyalty and obedience to Stannis. They see a Davos who is so loyal to Stannis that he does the right thing on Stannis' behalf to spare his king a moral event horizon by doing the right thing and saving Edric Storm. But that Davos makes a logical deduction that the ship is a Lysine ship rather than one of Joffrey's ships makes Davos' loyalty much less blind and potentially something else entirely. When Davos declares that he serves Stannis and the sailors reply, aye, sir, and so do we, we shouldn't take these as face value statements. Because remember Dance with Dragons? Those same Lysine sailors will make off with Salador San for the Stepstones when Stannis can't pay them, leaving Stannis' service entirely. Come the winds of winter, will Davos stay loyal to Stannis in the long term? Will he stay so loyal to Stannis when he finally crosses that moral red line when he burns Shireen? Or, more to the point, given Davos's deep guilt he feels over his sons and his memory of his currently living sons, when he finds out that his family is endangered back in the Rainwood, will, he st- will Davos stay at Stannis' side? Or, will he Odysseus-like make the voyage back to Maria and his young sons to save them from the flames of war? Ultimately, the hypothetical here is what Davos would have said if he identified the sail as Lannister Crimson. And I think Davos would be less like the knights from Sansa's final Clash of Kings chapters. Remember those guys being like, ah, yes, I'm going to serve Stannis to the very bitter end and chop, chop, they're gone. Because he's, they've faced the execution block rather than forswear their allegiance to Stannis. That, in my opinion, may be a precursor to things not yet published until next week or the week thereafter. So I think that's going to take us into a a foreshadowing and groundwork. Uh, Davos uh, guesses right at the end there. Uh, that the ship belongs to Salador San specifically, and he is right. Of course, they take him directly to Sala in his next chapter. That's how things start off with uh, Davos being brought back into his orbit. And I'm looking forward to that because Sala is a very fun character, especially in these very, very bleak Davos chapters. The, the fun part about Salador San is is that you know he seems like just kind of like a, a character straight out of fantasy, right? He's got a decked yes. out in colors and everything like that. Absolutely. But he speaks so much sense to Davos throughout his story. So he's not just a dude that's just like kind of a, he's not just window dressing for, for the story. He's actually the guy that's almost like speaking logically to Davos when he can't get out of his own ass in some ways. That's a good point. It's not what you would expect from a kind of like foppish character who's always like speaking in paragraphs. You wouldn't expect him to be the sensible person in the room. That's a really, yeah, we'll talk more about that in Davos too. That's an unexpected dynamic that Davos is the one kind of talking crazy and Salador's like, sit down and have some soup. What, is, what, are you, <laughs> what are you talking about, dude? Dude, yeah, like just wine and soup. That's what you need right now. And then we're going to go right. off pirating off in the you you're, know, do you're or, barely do alive. Just calm down. Right. You could barely hold a dagger for, for God's sake. Exactly. So speaking of sailing and sailors, all that talk about how armored men sank to the bottom of Blackwater, that reads as early inspiration for Lord Admiral Idiot Pirate Vitarian Greyjoy, <laughs> who, of course, wears full plate armor into the Battle of the Shield Isles in A Feast for Crows and does not plan on stopping wearing full armor into battle anytime soon. Gee, I wonder how that's going to work out for Victarian ultimately. Yeah, everything works out for okay. Victarian. Yeah, everything's turning up Victarian. Exactly. So another another little thing that happens right at the end there is that Davos thinks to himself that he he can't read the ship's name. He can't tell their allegiances. He can't read them, their name because he never learned how to read. But he will by the end of his arc in this book. And that's something I'll talk a lot more about in later Davos chapters is his, his learning to read and how that kind of stands in for his rise up the ladder as a whole. But George is just dropping a little a little hint of that here. So it'll uh, uh, flower later on. I, I love the Davos learning to read dynamic. I think it's one of the, the best parts of A Storm of Swords. One of the, it's not under underexplored or underloved, but I think it's just something that just, just touches my heart because, you know, it feeds into the obviously the obvious plot line at the wall where Davos is learning, reading the, the the note from Maester Aemon there in, in A Storm of Swords. He's like, oh, shit, things are going bad here. And then he presents that letter to 
to Stannis in his final chapter in A Storm of Swords. And it's just a, just a brilliant uh, thing to see that kind of character progression and dynamic for, for Davos bringing forward to, uh, throughout his arc in A Storm of Swords. So as we uh, said earlier in the episode, we were moving the question this week to our, our theory and discussion portion of the episode because it's relevant to something we wanted to talk about. So we got this question from Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, who asks, We always hear about how useless the Seven are in terms of power, and if they are even real, but Davos believes they rescued him for a reason, actually hearing the mother speak to him. Do you think this might be a hint that the Seven actually have some real power? Was it another of the gods, Relore maybe, or even just boring old luck? And yeah, that's that's the big kind of tantalizing question in this chapter is what's what's exactly going on at the end there with Davos? Is he having a real supernatural experience or not? George has said that he intended this moment to be ambiguous for whatever that's worth. Uh, for me, I follow the what I call the new information test for supernatural occurrences. And this naturally comes from an episode of The Simpsons. That uh, that classic episode where Homer eats way too many chili peppers and goes on a crazy vision <laughs> quest, and he meets a coyote voiced by Johnny Cash, one of the greatest guest appearances in anything ever. And uh, the coyote tells Homer <laughs> that he has to find his soulmate. And later, after Homer so- sobered up, he hears that voice on the wind, find your soulmate, Homer, find your soulmate. And Homer says, where, where? And the voice goes, this is just your memory. I can't give you any more new information. <laughs> so that's that's my new information test for supernatural occurrences. Does the god or voice or whatever give you new information? Or is it just stuff you already know? So like when Quaithe shows up in Dance with Dragons, Danny is swimming in her pool in Marine and suddenly Quaithe is there. She gives Danny info about characters Danny hasn't heard of yet. Stuff about like Quentin, Young Griff, uh, Victorian, and Makuro. So clearly that's a legit supernatural phenomenon because that could not have come out of Danny's head. Hmm. But here, all the mother tells Davos is that it sucks you burned us, bro. Maybe you shouldn't have done that. I mean, that's already where Davos' head is at. That's already the kind of thought he's thinking. It's not like the mother goes, Davos, they just burned my loyal servant Gunser Sunglass over on Dragonstone. You should go avenge him. <laughs> that would be new information. As it stands, I I don't think anything supernatural happened here. I think this is Davos talking to himself. In his deprivation and grief and trauma, his brain conjures up a familiar image so he can reckon with his own conscience. It's like how Catelyn saw familiar faces in the chalk outlines of the gods down at Storm's End. This is a psychological projection, filling an emotional need. And I think it's telling this is the only time in the story it's even suggested there might be some metaphysical power behind the faith of the Seven. In Dance with Dragons, Tyrion visits Andal territory, the place the faith of the Seven was born. And it's all just the hills and estates now. Nothing magical to be seen. We'll talk a lot more about this in Davos too, but I think this spiritual revelation for Davos is mostly meant to parallel Melisandre. Even as Davos declares holy war on the Red Woman and her god, he's actually talking and acting a lot like her. The gods are what we make of them, ultimately, whether the magic is real or not. Bingo, man. I think you you hit the nail on the head throughout, but especially with your last few thoughts there. Because, you know, sometimes, sometimes it feels like people project their own gnawing doubts about whether the divine exists into the real, uh, in the real world into a song of ice and fire. Because obviously the seven don't real because God, God doesn't exist in the real world or some such. And a lot of folks take George's personal agnosticism slash atheism as a barometer for whether the divine exists in the world of ice and fire. But I'm not sure whether knowing George's perspective on religion and on God obscures more than it clarifies. Take Tolkien, for example. Despite Tolkien coming from, from a very trad cath personal perspective, you can read Lord of the Rings and read the world as magical, but somewhat godless. Yes, I am aware of who Gandalf and Saruman represent. Lay off me, guys. My own perspective on the Seven is similar to, to yours, and that I, I, I don't see a lot of evidence for the Seven for the reasons that you outline. The best evidence for the Seven is really this chapter, and it's not strong evidence for the reader. And yet it's compelling for Davos. The mother, or something, or his consciousness, speaks to Davos, and it's not... And it's not as important from a character perspective whether it's truly the mother or not. Though it's probably not actually the mother, for again, the reasons you outline. The gods, especially the seven, are a play on that shadow on the wall concept. Where's divine power lie? It lies where men says it lies. That's the power of the gods for Davos and for a lot of these religious characters like Catelyn in A Song of Ice and Fire. Catelyn and Davos believe that the mother spoke to them. 
And that's enough for Davos to start living again. And if I can like bring my own personal perspective in here, I mean, that's there are days where I'm not sure whether there's a God who exists in, in some way, but there's a part of me that there was some dark times in my own personal life back in the day where feeling that there was a divine presence in my life propelled me to live more than uh, more than I wanted to my own personal circumstance. And I think that's that's the power of of religion in some ways, but it's also the power of story too here in A Storm of Swords that it can speak to me personally, but also like speak outside of George's perspective. You know, George being that kind of atheist agnostic guy as we talked about in our, our Minnesota, which will be out for our, our high lords, ladies, and small council patrons, is able to write a really compelling religious scene and a religious conversion scene, if you want to call it that, for, for Davos. And I think that's the power of George's writing and credit to George's style that he's able to identify with a perspective that's outside of his own. I'm not a super religious person myself, as, as people may have guessed, but <laughs> one one thing I've heard from, from people I know who are is that doubt is an integral part of faith, and that if your mm-hmm. faith makes no room for doubt, it's really kind of shallow, and it's more just like you avoiding thinking about hard things, and that mm-hmm. you have to you have to go through, through questions for it to, to be real, for it to mean anything, and it also... You know, religion is never an isolated person, part of a person's life, I feel like. You know, it, it's it's in your life for a reason. It changes as it contacts other parts of your life or doesn't. And, you know, for Davos, we'll talk in later chapters about how kind of quickly he moves on from the whole warrior of God stick, which I know for some people is kind of like sticks out like, oh, they, they kind of dropped this thread. But for me, I feel like Davos and Storm is just he's looking for something to believe in. He's looking for some kind of meaning. And what that is kind of changes over the course of the book. It starts with the mother. And then shifts into, like, uh, you know, standing up for himself with corrupt people and politics and Dragonstone. And then it's, I'm Hand of the King, what do I do with that? And then gradually works his way to Edric Storm, this is the reason I'm here. And there's, you know, he's never going to find a reason to live where, like, a spotlight comes down from the sky. and goes, Davos, you found the one perfect reason to live. Like, that's, it's just never going to occur. And I think he realizes that eventually, like, I have to pick something and put myself on the line for it. And whether I get a voice going, good job, buddy, in my ear isn't really isn't really the point. And I think he gradually works his way to that. I think that's that's really well said. And I think that's that's an important part of, of the storytelling dynamic for that that George has here. And you know, it's it, it's brilliant enough for that we have this character of Davos back in a storm of swords, especially when uh, you weren't sure when you were reading through the first time whether he was going to survive the Blackwater because it seems like he's. He's dead, right? At the end of A Clash of Kings. I thought so for the first time through. I think, yeah, I remember thinking he was dead. I was shocked. Yeah, because I watched through season two and then I read the books right after that between mm-hmm. season two and three. And I was like, Davos? Davos is alive? That guy? Really? <laughs> really? Interesting. That's that's weird. Let's find out how this story goes. And this is a, this is a banger of a start for, for Davos' arc and a storm of swords. And I think it's uh, we can only go up from here for sure. So I think that is going to wrap us up for our analysis on A Storm of Swords. Davos One, as always, thank you so much for all of you for listening. And thank you to all of you who have been tuning in for our live cast. We appreciate all of your eyes and ears. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you've, where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is board, <laughs> and my website is brendabfish.substack.com. Hell yeah, it is. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon Merrifull Head Affair, Lady Silverwing, Cabothian Frozen, Lord of the Bricks in Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Means. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, 
Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planeto Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Warden of the Lake, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, and our newest High Lady, Hortense of Ashai, who has been a High Lady for some time now, and Jeff has written, Jeff is the worst in the dock, but I refuse to endorse such an incorrect position, Jeff, frankly, you're the best, and you know it, well, so well, shush. Point of fact, and first of all, thank you to all of our High Lords and Ladies, and uh, welcome, in quotation marks, to, to Lady Hortense, uh, she had actually become a High Lady back in, like, March, maybe even February, so, um... Yeah, my, my, my bookkeeping is, is not up to snuff as, as it stands for a lot of these things. But thank you so much for, for joining our, our our high ladies, uh, as for, for joining as a high lady back in the day. And it's, and it's a pleasure to, to welcome you in, in actuality here for uh, to, to, the, to the table of the high lords and high ladies. So join us next week for a Storm of Swords Sansa one in which it's just us girls and Loris hanging out, having fun, nothing else at work going on in the chapter, right? This chapter was was a uh, very sparse, very good, but also very kind of kind of slim and to the point. Sansa one is just is just a feast. There's just a lot going on in that chapter. Can't wait to do it with you. Oh yeah, me too. Can't wait to do Sansa chapters. Never thought you probably heard me say that, but that's okay. What a shot! It's a good it's a good ass chapter. It's a really really good chapter. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for all of you who are tuning in and watching. And we'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords Sansa one.